0: Please open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. As we deal with chapters 18 and 19 and 20, I'm going to be a little more selective in the texts in these sections. I simply want to praise God that I have a voice and can preach. I'm really thankful uh, for His goodness to me. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Let us bow in prayer before reading. Almighty God and Father, as the exalted Christ did pour out His Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, so we know that You have also promised powerful effusions of Your Spirit, times of refreshing until Jesus comes again. We ask therefore that that same holy spirit that enabled Peter to preach on that day and made his words powerful will enable the words of this minister as he expounds sacred scripture to be powerful today in our hearts that your people would believe and repent and grow in grace and that lost people who do not know Christ would be drawn out of themselves to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ even as The people of God are taught and instructed from this text on how we are to love one another in the context of the church. May those who are outside of Christ and therefore also outside of your church be brought to faith in him and become members of your family. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. This is the word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven." Or where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. People of God, there is a desperate need in our day for a good biblical doctrine of the church. Today's evangelicals are often church consumers. Which fast food appeals today, that attitude seems to be applied often to the church. Thought of deeply rooted doctrine in life with commitment to a congregation is very, very rare indeed. But Jesus, who is head and king of the church, is concerned about this high doctrine of the church. You will recall in chapter 16, verse 18, that our Savior said, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we saw when we were looking at that chapter that it will not do for us to simply have this idea of the church floating in the air with no concreteness. What Jesus anticipates is the concretization of the church where he says in chapter 16 verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus himself therefore anticipates A church with concrete congregational form, with pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, discipline, and committed church members. And this step, as we move on to the pastoral epistles, in which we find these things, can help develop a deep commitment to this high doctrine of the church. Now, you know that there are four attributes of the church. One, holy, catholic, and apostolic. The attribute of the church that is being emphasized by Jesus in this passage is the holiness of the church. Holiness is essentially related to our mutual accountability. As we are accountable one to another, we encourage holiness of life, and this great attribute of the church is essential to our understanding of what Jesus is teaching here. There is nothing difficult in this passage, nothing that is hard to understand. It is a matter of going through it understanding it, and then being obedient to what he tells us to do. What Jesus tells you and me as believers in this passage is not a suggestion. This is what God says we are to do as believers in the context of the body of Christ. And so as we come to this passage, the first thing that we see is a person needing discipline. A person needing discipline. In verse 15, we are told, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And so we have a brother, one who professes faith in Christ, and he sins against you in some way. The word is hamartano. He misses the mark. In some way, he has missed the mark in his relationship with you, and he has sinned against you. Perhaps he was abrupt with you. Perhaps he gossiped about you. Perhaps he has misunderstood you. Perhaps he did some wrong of some kind to you. Now we need discipline. We need caring of one another, confronting one another. We need challenging in the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he teaches us in this text, "Go to your brother. You should go to your brother with a sort of attitude. You should say, "My brother, my brother, I see a sin in your life. I love you, my brother. I want you to know that I see this sin in your life. Your sin and mine put the Savior to the tree, my brother." Your sin and mine drove the nails into the Savior's hands. The nails into his feet drove the spear into his side. It was your sin and mine, brother, that drove down this crown of thorns deep into his flesh. My brother, he died for your sins and mine. I see a sin in your life, and I love you, and I'm concerned about this. My brother, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? My brother, there's sin in your life. Jesus went to a cross for that sin. I'm concerned about you. That's the attitude that should drive you to confront your brother who sins against you. Now, our Heavenly Father disciplines His children, does He not? Do you remember what He tells us in Hebrews 12, 7 through 11? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so when you come to your brother, you are reflecting the fatherly character of God, who so loves you that he exercises discipline in your life. And we must help one another to pursue holiness, and we do that when we confront one another. The goal is to win your brother. Rejoice when you come, he repents, and all is done. But go to him as soon as you know about it. And your attitude should be, because of the gospel of God's sovereign grace and his fatherly love to me, I also will in grace go to my brother and show and reflect the fatherly love of God to Him. My attitude, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So that's the first thing. A brother in need of discipline. As we go on in the text, the second thing that is clear is that you are responsible to initiate the discipline, brothers and sisters, you and I. Again, verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And so the first line when your brother sins against you is not the church at large, but to go one on one. How many of us fail to do this? My brother sins against me and what do I do? I go to another brother and I tell my brother that I've been sinned against. And then I begin to gossip about my brother. Tell me if this isn't true. Tell me if this is not often what we do. How often we do this? No, my brothers and sisters, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, you see it says, tell him his fault. The verb there is linko, It's an aorist imperative, so it's command. The word means to reprove. It means to bring to light. It means to expose or convict. And so when you go to your brother... The purpose of going to your brother is to convince him of his sin, to convict him should the Holy Spirit use you of his sin. That's your goal, so that he may believe and so that he may repent. And this applies to all, young and old. If you're a child, you're not exempt from this. Now listen, our children are going to learn this from us. If they see that we do not go to our brother when he sins against us, but go to others, they will do the same. If we do not correct them and train them up in righteousness and teach our children when your brother or sister sins against you, you go to him, you go to him alone first. If you don't teach them that, they will not do it. If we want the kind of church that God says this church should be, then teach your children these things by example, by precept. Teach your children these things. So you go to your brother in private. And if he repents, then nothing more is to be done. You've won your brother. At this point, you bring no one else into it. It's done. It's over. But what does it say about you and me if we do not care enough about our brothers and sisters to do this? You know, you and I have no right to avoid our brother's good. No believer is exempt from go and reprove your brother that sins against you. Have you ever thought that this is disobedience from the clear teaching of Jesus when we do not do this? And that it quenches His Holy Spirit because He teaches us in His Word this is what we are called as believers to do. The Holy Spirit is not going to lead you and me to do something contrary to His Word. Have you ever Have you ever thought that part of the reason that the evangelical church in our culture is in the mess that it's in is due to our failure in this matter? Have you ever read about revival? I mean, have you ever really read about God-sent, heaven-sent biblical revival? One of the things that happens in the church in biblical revival is that Christians make things right one with another. You know, in Leviticus 19, the passage that Pastor MacDonald read, we were told by God, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And so do you ever consider it unloving when you do not confront your brother who has sinned against you? It is unloving when you do not do that. True love does not tolerate sin. Our culture's view of love is let people do what they will. It doesn't matter. That is not love. That is hate. That is calling black, white, darkness, light, sweet, And that is why the world is totally unconcerned with us as a church. They're indifferent to us. What we try to do is to make the world to be concerned with us by putting strobe lights in the church and doing all kinds of strange things, which is not influencing the world at all. The world is influencing the church. If we as a church want to have an influence on the world, then let's obey God. Let's be obedient to His Word. Let the world see holiness of life in your life and in the life of this congregation. Lack of holiness, that's why the world is indifferent to the church today. I want to disturb Satan. I want to be at war with the world and the flesh and the devil. I want a congregation that disturbs Satan, that is at war with the world and the flesh and the devil, that is concerned with holiness of life. Is that you? And so the fundamental problem is our failure to understand the holiness of God, which is the attribute that permeates this chapter. And so the church no longer believes in God's wrath, no longer believes in substitutionary atonement, holds a soft view of sin, and it leads to ethical compromise all around and a failure to confront our brothers, because theology is a seamless garment, and when one fundamental begins to unravel, it leads to all sorts of implications for life. The evangelical church in America is overwhelmingly worldly and worships a false god. Hence, the church is man-centered, sappy, and sentimental, and not obedient. My friend, I want to ask you to be gripped by the stillness of eternity. To be gripped way down deep in your heart by the fact that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That we will give an account on that day. Yes, believers in Christ will give an account in that day as those declared righteous in Christ But nonetheless, we give an account on that day. One reason we do not confront, one reason you and I do not confront our brother is because you and I are allowing in our lives things that don't belong. Tell me if that is not true. We're allowing all sorts of things in our lives that just should not be there. And so you don't go to your brother to confront him in his sin because you're living in sin. It's true. We need to remove the log from our own eye and then we may go to our brother and help him to remove the mote that is in his. It's because we don't care about holiness. And you cannot pursue holiness for your brother if you are not pursuing holiness in your own life. The third thing we see in this text about this matter is the purpose of discipline. And we find that also in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the purpose of going to your brother is to see him restored. Had we time to look at all of Scripture, we would see discipline is for the glory of God, the purity of the church, and to regain the brother. And regaining the brother is what is emphasized here. Now let's look at a couple of passages. Just keep your finger in Matthew 18 and look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it without comment. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or turn to the book of James. The last chapter, chapter 5, the last two verses. James 5:19 and 20. "My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, that's what he's talking about in Matthew 18:15, when he says, "You've gained your brother or won your brother," the word "Kerdino means to win. You've gained him, you've won him. There's no place for a privatized Christianity, free to do as one pleases, even if that means following the flesh. No, no, we are to confront one another and gain our brothers. The heart of the purpose of all of this is expressed in chapter 18, verses 10 and following. Look back, chapter 18, 10 and following. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, and this is your heart when you go to your brother who has sinned against you. Now, the fourth thing we see in the text is the process, the process of discipline. Go to your brother one-on-one. We've seen that. Well, what if he doesn't listen to you? Look at verse 16, Matthew 18, 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you take one or two along with you. He cites Deuteronomy 19:15. by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall a thing be established, and you take them so that you may confront, and should it come to the next step, you have witnesses. Now, what if they will not listen even after that? He, he still refuses to believe and to repent. Well, then you take it to the church, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses and so forth, so you take it to the church. And the New Testament goes on to recognize the role of elders in the church. But the point is this. All pastoral efforts having failed, the congregation needs to be a part of the discipline and to pray and seek recovery and to enforce the discipline that is administered. So if you tell it to the church and he still refuses to listen, what do you do then? Then? Well, verse 17 tells us, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Jesus is not saying, go and have fellowship with him, because Jesus sat down with tax collectors and so forth. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, just as Gentiles and tax collectors have no place in Israel, Remember, Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, just as they have no place in Israel. So one calling himself a brother that does not repent of ungodliness is to be excluded from the fellowship of the church until or unless he does repent. That's what Jesus means. He means that now you treat this brother no longer as a brother, but as an unbeliever. That he's manifesting himself insofar as we can tell as an unbeliever. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see an example of that where the Apostle Paul rebukes the church at Corinth because they refused to discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, the first six verses, we are told by divine inspiration, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Do you see that? Removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so the Apostle Paul says this man is in an incestuous relationship. He is to be separated from the body, no longer a part of the church's fellowship. And you say that sounds harsh. Let me tell you why it sounds harsh. It sounds harsh... Because we are influenced by worldly sentimentalism rather than by the word of God. If God, who is love, says to us in Matthew 18, this is how I choose to recover and awaken offenders, then who am I and who are you to say I'll do it in some other way? You and I have no right to follow a different program than the one that God himself has instituted in his word. Now, Back there in Matthew 18, verse 17, the you is singular. Look at it. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen even to the church, let him be to you. That you is singular, not plural. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In the Greek text, it's singular. In other words, each one of you believers is to abide by the judgment of the discipline. Now, I remember years ago, nobody here would know who I'm talking about. There was a man in our congregation, not yet a member, working toward church membership, and he left his wife unbiblically had no biblical justification whatsoever, went back to another very large church in a nearby community and was restored immediately to the teaching of the young adult Sunday school class class that he had left when he came here. I called the pastor on the phone. They must not know. They must not know. I called the pastor on the phone. I said, My brother, do you not know this man has left his wife unbiblically? The pastor did not care. You know, that's a dangerous thing. Discipline is one of the marks of a true church. The true preaching of the word, true administration of the sacraments, the true administration of discipline. And yet, my friends, that is exactly where, by and large, the church is today. We care nothing. what God prescribes in his word and care nothing about holiness as an attribute of the church. Now God indeed does often use the process of discipline to recover an offender. Keeping your finger in Matthew 18, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now you will remember that in 1 Corinthians we just read that there was a man involved in an incestuous relationship And the Apostle Paul is aghast that the church has not administered discipline. Well, evidently along the way, they believed and repented and did administer discipline. And here's the result in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 8. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment... By the majority, that's the discipline. The punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What happened? This man believed, and he repented when the church administered discipline. And now the Apostle Paul says, you accept him, you receive him, you forgive him. Welcome the repentant. Never look askance upon him. Completely receive your brother. But we need to move on to a fifth thing we see in the text, and that is the church's authority for discipline. And we see it in verses 18 through 20. Let's read them again. Matthew 18, 18 and following. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So when the church acts in conformity to Christ's will, we have God's endorsement of it. Binding and loosing, as I explained in chapter 16, means what is forbidden and permitted scripturally. Heaven, in verse 18, is a metonymy for God. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, that is to say, by God Himself. And so as in chapter 16, 19, we have these future perfect passives where the church conforms to what God Himself has done. In John 20, 23, we are told if a person believes in Christ, then when he believes in Christ, His sins are loosed, forgiven. And if not, they are bound, not forgiven. That's what he means there. Further assurance that God acts with his church is found in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Which points back to the two witnesses already mentioned in verse 16. The church acts according to God's will and God confirms it. The anything of verse 19, if you agree about anything they ask, means any judicial matter. Additional confirmation is found in verse 20, when he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's a verse that is often lifted out of its context. It's talking about church discipline. Christ is there in the midst of his church confirming the truth of the two or three faithful witnesses. That's what the text means. If this has not been your view of the matter, then seek to bring your thinking and affections in line with the Holy Scriptures. Well, perhaps there's someone here and you're just plain spiritually slothful. You're just slothful. You're careless. Let me ask you this question. Are your affections warm to God so that the passion of your life is submission and obedience to His Word, whatever it teaches and wherever it leads? Or are you cold in your affections toward God and disobedience to His Word? I heard a minister from Ulster say once, You know, many churches are so cold, so cold. And in some of them, if you brought a bucket of milk in the front door before it got to the pulpit, it will have turned to ice cream because the church is so cold. What about you? What about your heart? Are you passionate for obedience to His truth and submission to His Word? Or do you say, this seems harsh to me, and so I'm going to do it my way rather than God's way? Well, let's bring it to conclusion. What action does this call upon you and me to administer? What does it call upon you and me to do? Well, when my brother sins against me, I should be so concerned about my brother's state of heart that I go to my brother And I say to my brother, oh my brother, my brother, I'm concerned for your soul. I'm concerned for your heart. Look to Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that this is sin? What ingratitude it is to go back into sin when Jesus paid the debt for your sin. What ingratitude it is to live a life of sin when God has saved his people by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. You know, I've been asking you to pray for revival. I know some of you are doing it because you've spoken to me. You've told me that you're doing it. I wonder if we even know what that means. You know, when there's true revival that comes to a Christian community, to a church or churches, there is just a solemn sense of God and his presence. I refresh my memory this week on what happened in the Isle of Lewis. This was just a little over 50 years ago. In the Isle of Lewis off the coast of Scotland. Two old women who were so physically decrepit they could not even go to church any longer began to pray. The young people were no longer coming to the worship services. They began to pray, to pray, to pray. There was a dance on the island. Over a hundred young people there. And all of a sudden, God's power fell down upon them. Yeah, at the dance. And they were convicted of their their deep sin. Their self-centeredness. They fled to the church building. When the minister arrived, so many teenagers had gathered there, he couldn't even get to the pulpit. The church was choked with young people. One woman sitting up near the pulpit was crying out. She was a graduate of the University of Aberdeen, crying out, Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? The minister ministered there till 5 o'clock in the morning. One night he was addressing two or 300 people. They said, You've got to come see this. It was 11 o'clock at night. The minister went outside. And there were six or seven hundred people outside the church waiting to be preached to. They had come from all the villages and hamlets. Nobody knocked on their door and said there's going to be a worship service. God came down. Gave them such a sense of their hell-deservedness, they knew they needed to hear the gospel, and they just went to the church. One old farmer... On his knees, crying out, Hell is too good for me. Hell is too good for me. Hell is too good for me. One boy, kneeling by the roadside with his friends, he was drunk. His mother, with her arm around around him, saying, Oh, Willie, will you come now? Oh, Willie, will you come now? Willie came to faith in Christ and is now a free Presbyterian minister. As I look back through the report, I think there were 14 or more young people that became ministers in the Presbyterian Church. You know what? It lasted. The Isle of Lewis became ascending ground, missions around the world. Very little backsliding has happened on the Isle of Lewis. It lasted. Remarkable, remarkable, remarkable thing. You know something else that happens in revival? is that Christians search their hearts and people make things right. Things they've harbored in their hearts perhaps for years. They go to their brother and they make it right. Now don't wait for revival for that to happen. But let me ask you, if we were to do that, go to our brother, make things right with our brother, don't you think that would be a harbinger of good things, in our future? Don't you think that that might be an indicator that God is going to send that almighty, powerful revival, awakening people to their need of Jesus and blessing His church in that powerful, powerful, wonderful way that only He can? I wonder... If you understand that those old words of the prophet still have application to us today, when the prophet Isaiah said, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion." Believe, repent, get things out of your lives that don't belong there anymore. And so, with whom do you need to make something right? Is there someone that you need to forgive or to whom you need to go and ask his or her forgiveness? Because you see, the foundation of all of this is the gospel, the foundation of all of this is the cross. When you go to your brother, you show that you're redeemed, that you're purchased, that you do not belong to yourself. When you receive your brother who comes and points out sin in your life, you are showing that you are not condemned. Because you needn't fear what your brother says. My condemnation has already been borne by Jesus. Come, tell me my sin. The condemnation has already been borne. And so church discipline... Church discipline will be restored in the church of Jesus Christ when we get back to the cross, back to the broken body of Jesus, back to the preciousness of His shed blood. I read this in Jonathan Edwards this week. How astonishing it is that a person who is blessed forever and is infinitely and essentially happy should endure the greatest sufferings that ever were endured on earth. That a person who is the Supreme Lord and Judge of the world should be arraigned and should stand at the judgment seat of mortal worms and then be condemned. That a person who is the living God and the fountain of life should be put to death. That a person who created the world and gives life to all his creatures, should be put to death by his own creatures, that a person of infinite majesty and glory, and so the object of the love, praise, and adoration of angels, should be mocked and spit upon by the vilest of men, that a person infinitely good and who is love itself should suffer the greatest cruelty, that a person who is infinitely beloved of the Father Should be put to inexpressible anguish under his own father's wrath, that he who is king of heaven, who hath heaven for his throne and the earth for his footstool, should be buried in the prison of a grave. How wonderful is this! And yet, this is the way that God's wisdom hath fixed upon of the way of sinners' salvation, and neither as neither unsuitable nor dishonorable. Christ. And if my heart and your heart is gripped by the fact that the infinite creator of all hung upon a cross and shed his blood to redeem me, then I can live in a reconciled way with my brother. Then I can go to my brother. Then I can receive my brother who comes to me. Because the blood of Christ washes away all sin. And oh, unbeliever who may be here today, and I hope you're bringing unbelievers here. I hope you're inviting unbelievers here. Unbeliever, do you not see the love of God here? Do you not see that God so loves his people that he sent his son to die for his people? Do you not see the love that is shown when a brother in Christ goes to a brother in Christ and says, Brother, you've sinned, let's believe and repent together? You say, I don't want that kind of accountability. You can't avoid accountability. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You will not avoid accountability. You will not escape it. But Rather, what you should say is, I see incredible love here, and that incredible love attracts me to Jesus Christ. My friend, come to the cross. If you've never come, come now. Come to the cross. Come to Christ. Because there is mercy offered through the gospel today. There is mercy today, but there is judgment tomorrow. Nothing but justice after death. No mercy then, if you do not know Christ. Mercy today. No mercy when Jesus comes again and judges the quick and the dead, if you do not know Christ. Turn to Christ now. For the Scriptures say, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.